Uh, we are now in our first Sunday of Lent. Uh, began Wednesday night. Heard great reports of at the various campuses of the Ash Wednesday service. And now this is the first Sunday. Lent is the 40 days before Easter. And as I said last week, uh, originally Lent was what people did. They went through 40 days of preparation for baptism. People would be converted to Christianity and these adults would uh, go through this 40 day of preparation and then they would be baptized. And I pointed out that for the first several hundred years in Christianity, everyone who was baptized was an adult. They didn't start baptizing babies and stuff till later, which quite frankly, they just made up because they thought it would make sense. But it's not a biblical thing. If you were hanging on to your infant baptism, then, you know, good for you. But it's just not a biblical thing. Jesus was 30 years old when he got baptized. Everybody in the Bible was an adult. He got baptized. So that's what they did. And it was such a meaningful preparation when these people would get go through this 40 days that they decided to incorporate it into the whole church so that all Christians would do this on an annual basis. That was the beginning of Lent. So they basically took this discipline for new converts, brought it to everybody so that the 40 days before Easter, people would focus on their faith and get their hearts ready for the Easter uh, celebration. Now, what I love about Lent is, is the reflection on the Christian discipline of saying no to our physical nature. Something you don't hear a lot of today. Ash Wednesday was, of course, reflecting on the fact that we are temporarily here. Uh, we are uh, carnal, simple, temporary beings that will die someday. If you live long enough, you will die. And uh, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And... Uh, this, we read this scripture last week where Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now that's something you don't hear a lot of today because we live in a very consumeristic culture that does everything but deny yourself. It's all about gimme, 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 gimme. I've got to have it. And if you can't afford it right now, throw it on a credit card and you can get it now. Because you got to have it right now because we need what we need right now. Now, 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 now. And we're very uh, counter to the Christian discipline of saying no to what you want to yourself. But Jesus said, if you want my disciple, be my disciple. You got to learn to say no to yourself and take up your cross, which was an instrument of death. Now, remember, he hadn't died on the cross yet. They had no idea what he was talking about. It sounded very weird. It would have been like someone today saying, if you want to follow me, you got to grab your hangsman's noose and follow me, which is very odd. Why would you do such a thing? Because it's about denying yourself, dying to yourself. Why is it important for us to die to ourselves so that Christ can live in us and blossom in us? Besides, dead people are very easy to get along with. They, they never get irritated. You can poke them with sticks. They don't respond. You know, it's fine. We need to be more like dead people in terms to how we let things irritate us and bother us. Okay, he goes on to say, for whoever wants to save their life, I want, I want, I want, I want to save my life. Well, then you're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, if you learn this discipline of saying no to yourself, you will save it. Now, we've been encouraging people to join us with our Lenten devotional. If you didn't get a devotional book, you want to stop by the bookstore and pick that up uh, for $5. It's very simple daily devotional scripture reading, simple little prayers to pray. I mean, it's not exactly martyrdom for Christ here. It's very, very simple stuff to do. 
and join with us as we reflect on denying ourselves and preparing our hearts for uh, this time of, of Easter and encouraging people, you know, as has been the Christian tradition for over a thousand years of giving something up for Lent where you just say no. And, and it isn't, you, do, you don't do this to get forgiveness of your sins. You don't do this to earn God's grace in your life. That's a whole different bargain. This is just a way of you telling your body to shut up. Your body, if you don't learn to say no to this, listen to me, especially you young people, you don't learn to say no to yourself you will never succeed in life. The people who constantly are letting their bodies determine what they do and how they feel determine what they do are the people who accomplish little to nothing in life. Certainly this is true in the Christian faith, but it's true in anything. You know, I mean, who wants to study in school? Nobody wants to study. It's the ones who don't even ask themselves that question. Just shut up, I gotta study. You know, you hear these musicians up there. How do you get that. People all say, oh, I wish I could play the piano like you, Pastor Mark. No, you don't. Because you'd have to discipline yourself. And for hours on end, da -da 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 -da. you know, I call it practice till you puke. You know? And you just keep doing it over and over and over again. Why? Nobody feels like doing that. Good grief. When my friends were out running around having fun, Whee! I said, no, no, I gotta, I gotta practice my music. You know, nobody wants to do that, but you learn. Then the ones who learn not to always do everything they want are the ones who develop skills, who get higher education, the ones who uh, start businesses and succeed, are the ones who learn to say no to everything they want. Sadly, we live in a culture today where almost everybody's encouraged to do whatever they want. And if you don't feel like it, if you don't feel like it, you don't do it. Uh, there was quite a stir couple of months back, some lady wrote a uh, uh, article, I think it was printed in the Wall Street Journal, about uh, uh, Oriental families and the disciplines they have with their children and why they succeed at such a high level, musically, education-wise, because they teach their kids to just do something and who cares what you feel like. You know, in most of our homes, you know, you got to beg, scream, cry, yell, holler to get your kids to practice their piano for 30 minutes a day. And their article said, 30 minutes? We teach our kids that the first two hours are the hardest. You know, they three hours a day, every day, the violin, piano, whatever. I mean, it's a whole different culture. Obviously, we're not from that cult culture, but holy cow, could we use some of that today? And they succeed highly, but we struggle with that. We have a world that screams at us constantly. You have to get what you want because you deserve it. You deserve a break today. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. I'm worth it. All these ads that we hear. So anyway, I love this Lent time because it's a time of saying no. No, 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 no. Let's focus on God more in my life than what's on me. Now, what is highlighted, highlighted during this time is the struggle that Christians have dealt with for 2,000 years about the difference between believing and doing. And we've always swung from this, you know, and even in our lifetime, those of you my age or older remember evangelical churches that were super legalistic, you know, and your dress had to be this long and your, if your hair touched your ear, you were going to hell. And I mean, it's, I mean, they were legalistic about everything. 
what you could do, what you couldn't do. And I mean, this went crazy. It was all about do, 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 do. And then we've swung away from that so much now to where we've lived for the last 30 years about just believe. All that matters is that you believe. So we have tons of people in America who say they're Christians because they believe. They still live like hell, but they believe. And they think it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter because all I got to do is believe. And even we as evangelicals have gone out of our way to have huge crusades to get people just to repeat a prayer. We just get them to repeat a prayer. That's all that matters. We've had all these fabulous decisions for Christ based on what? Well, because they said the prayer. And we've created a whole generation of people who really believe because we've told them that all that matters is that you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. And when in fact, it does. And we've always had the struggle, even from the early days of Christianity. Now, we always like to grab the verses in the Bible that just talk about the believe side. For example, in Acts, this is a very famous verse, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's what we teach. Great. All you got to do is believe. Well, that's not really what the Bible says. There's places where it says that, but there's other verses that imply more. Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized. Wait a minute, I thought I just had to believe. No, you need to believe and be baptized. There's verses like what we just read. And if you're going to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross, follow me, and deny yourself. Whoa, whoa, whoa I thought I just had to believe. See, it's not the whole picture. To imply, now it begins with believing. You've got to start believing. But that's not the full picture. And during this time of Lent, we need to remind ourselves there's more to it than just believing. Paul talks about this in Ephesians. He says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. You can't earn it. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that nobody can be proud about it. For we are created... We are, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, wait a minute. He just said, we're not saved by works. We're not. We're saved by grace. Why? So we can do good works. This idea that all you got to do is believe, it doesn't matter what you do, is ludicrous and absurd. It is not the true Christian teaching. And from the beginning of Christianity... There has been this struggle of trying to balance it all out. Now, a lot of people are unaware of it, but in early Christianity, all people who believed in Jesus were Jews. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. His mama was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. They're all Jews. When you hear people say, you know, everyone's, well, I'll see some, you know, skinhead, you know, Ku Klux Klan guy or something on TV saying, you know, we're against these Jews. We're for our God-given Christian faith. I think, what an idiot, you know. Could you be that dumb and still breathe? It's unbelievable. Any Christian who says he hates Jews is an idiot wrapped up in a moron. Jesus was a Jew. They were all Jews. The whole Bible was written by Jews except for maybe Mark. For heaven's sakes, of all the dumbest things on earth, in the beginning, all Christians were Jews. This idea that Judaism and Christianity can't fit is, is absurd. It's just at some point they went their separate ways and it'll take another hour or two to teach on why that happened. But uh, in the beginning, actually, they didn't even believe you could be a Christian if you weren't Jewish. They didn't believe it. That was the major turning event in the New Testament when they finally let people like you and me in. They say, you mean Gentiles? That's what they call us, Gentiles, non-Jews. A Gentile can be saved? A Gentile can be a Christian? Inconceivable! But God had to teach us that, yes, they could all be, which is, you know, good for us. But then they struggled and said, okay, the Gentiles can be Christians, but they have to be Jews first. 
So we'll let them in, but they've got to become Jews, and they've got to obey all the rules of the Old Testament. And we're talking very, very strict rules. Rules about everything under the sun. I mean, this, I mean, it was very, very complicated in detail. We're not talking just the Ten Commandments here. There's hundreds of commandments about everything under the sun and stuff that makes no sense to me, but they had rules about everything. So they had this big fight in early Christianity about whether or not they have to obey all the Old Testament rules. By the way, if you ever hear another Christian come up to you and say, well, you, you got to start obeying all the Old Testament and you can't eat this and you can't because the Bible says, just get away from them. Okay? There's always, every, every so often you hear of a group of people who try to push Christians back to the Old Testament. We don't live by that. We're set free from that. Which is what he talks about next. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles, those of us who are not Jews, a yoke, talking about the Old Testament rules, that ne neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. We can't live by this stuff anyway ourselves. We can't follow all those rules. Why are we insisting that people who come to Jesus follow all those rules? No, he says with a big fact, exclamation point. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. So there's this struggle. On the one hand, we're saved by grace to do the right thing, but we're not talking legalistic things. But it's still, you got to do the right thing. It's not just about just believing. James writes about this. Again, if you read your New Testament, you will see this struggle, this debate through the whole New Testament about this idea of what it means to truly believe. Some say, well, all that matters is that you believe. Well, it's not just believe. You also got to do the right things, but you don't have to do all the legalistic things. That, that's the message of the New Testament. You'll see it. It's sown throughout the whole thing. James picks it up. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but then doesn't do the right things? He has no deeds to back up his faith. And he asks the question, can such faith save them? That was the argument. Today, millions and millions of Christians would say yes. Can such faith save them? Yes. I prayed the prayer. That's all that matters is that I believe. And when he asks this question, the implication to the answer is no. Just because you believe is not enough. You need to believe. How can you serve God if you don't believe in God? But just saying I believe is not enough. You have to do the right things. Suppose a brother or sister, he gives an example. Suppose, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Someone's really hurting. They really need some help. And then one of you says to them, go in peace. Keep warm and well fed. God bless you. God bless you. We love you. We're supporting you. We're praying for you. We're behind you. We're so far behind you, you can't see us. But we're behind you somewhere back here. God bless you. God bless you. And does nothing about their physical needs. He says, what good is it? What kind of faith is that? See, at the end of the day, if it's within your power to help somebody, but you don't help them, but instead you say, well, I'll just pray for you. He says, your faith is baloney. Real faith means you do something about it. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. So what a lot of people have, dead faith. They got faith, but it's dead, don't do anything. But someone will say, well, brother, you, you have faith. And I have deeds. You know, we're just different. And he says, show me your faith without your deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do, my deeds. And then he closes up with the obvious absurdity. You believe in God. Whoop do stink and do. Even demons believe that and shudder. In other words, he says, even Satan believes 
It's not going to do him any good. Satan's not going to, well, I believe. Well, Betty believes. It's not going to do him any good. Anyway, there's this 2,000 year struggle between grace and truth. See, grace says, grace, 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 love, peace, kindness, forgiveness, no matter what you've done. But then there's truth. You got to do the right thing. Got to do the right thing. Got to do the right thing. And we think that the two do not work together and they don't agree with each other. And, and you know me, I'm pretty much in people's faces about basic immorality. For the love of heaven, stop it! To Christians. I'm always challenging Christian people. Stop it! Now, I don't get on non-Christians. You know, we can't control what they do. What they do, they act like heathens. They're heathens. What are you going to do? What fries me is Christian people acting this way. And as I travel the world speaking in churches all the time, oftentimes people get real upset at me and say, well, well brother, what about grace? What about grace? Because they think that if you tell the truth, that's not grace. But it is grace. And the two can work together. John wrote this when he wrote about Jesus in the Gospel of John. He says, the Word, that's what he referred to as, as Jesus becoming the Word of, of God. That's why it's a capital W. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, talking about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had both in him. Full of grace, full of truth. The two do not cancel each other out. But it does mess with your head. I've been using the analogy for the last few weeks. For example, should you kill people? No. Will God forgive you if you kill people? Yes. Then I can kill people. No. But you said God will forgive me. Yes. Then I can. No. Can I lie, cheat, and steal? No. Will God forgive me if I do? Yes. Well, then I can. No. Can I divorce my husband? No. Will God forgive me if I do? Yes. Then I can. No. But all you ever hear today is the grace part. Grace. Doesn't matter what you do. And we talk about no truth. We think truth is contrary to grace. It is not. Oftentimes I'm confronted with, brother, you're, you just, where's the grace? Where's the grace? You mean the grace of God? The grace of the Bible? That grace? Let's take a look at that grace. We see this where Paul writes to a guy by the name of Titus. And he describes to him what grace is. Now, if you were to ask most Christians today in churches what grace is, the definition you would hear would be unmerited favor. doesn't matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And there's truth in all of that. But that's the end of their definition of grace. That's not what Paul defines as grace. Let's read what Paul says about grace. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, talking about Jesus. He is the grace of God, has appeared, that offers salvation to all people. And it, talking about this grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Odd today that if you encourage Christians to say no to doing the wrong things, people think that's not grace. But it is the very definition of grace. Because grace teaches us and enables us to say no. The Bible says Jesus came to save us from the power of sin. Which is really the insult of the whole thing. Because without Christ, you really can't say no. To sin controls people. Therefore, they sin. They really have no control over it. 
But when we as Christians continue to sin, how insulting is that? Because God made it possible for us to not have to do these things. This, again, this has always been the struggle in early Christianity for 2,000 years. Paul wrote about it in Romans. We won't look there, but he says, very familiar verse of scripture. Should we continue to sin that we can have more grace? Because what they were thinking was, wait, if you sin, then God's grace comes and forgives you of your sin, right? So they were literally saying, well, let's sin as much as we can. So we can have as much grace as we can. Everybody sin as much as you possibly can. Woo-hoo! So we can really enjoy God's grace. And Paul says, no, God forbid, he says. And he says it over and over again. God forbid, you don't just keep sinning so you can experience more of God's grace. The beauty about the grace is it sets us free from the sins that we don't have to go down there in the first place. So he says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled. We can live self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, Paul writes about in Galatians. Now, you often hear of fruits of the Spirit. We usually quote just the first three. Love, joy, peace. Peace, man. Love, joy, peace, like a hippie thing, you know. Oh, love, joy, peace. Yeah, that's the first three, but then there's a long suffering, which means suffering for a long time. We think something's wrong when we suffer. When in fact, the Bible says the beautiful thing about God's grace and spirit is he'll enable you to suffer for a long time and you'll still be okay. We don't like it. I don't like it. But he'll never let you die from it. I mean, you know, he won't destroy you from it. Long suffering and self-control. The spirit of God gives us self-control. You can, we can control ourselves. Now, you young people, you're surrounded by a world that tells you you cannot control yourself. Everybody does it. Oh, everybody, mom, everybody does it. Your teachers tell you, you know, porn, everything else, you know, sex with your boyfriend, everybody does it. Just make sure you do it right. Make sure you do it safe. Safe. You know, so they come up with alternate forms of sex. You know, it's not really sex. It's kind of sex. By the way, have you seen this thing recently? The number one cause of mouth and throat cancer in America today is oral sex. More than tobacco. It would be safer for you guys, you young people, to chew on a can of skull every day. I'm not, I'm not being absurd. That's seriously, it has replaced cancer or tobacco as the number one cause. I bet you you'll never hear that in our culture though. You see TV commercials with people with trachs in them and their mouths off missing and there's this new ad, we've seen this ad where these people are all singing, but they have no mouths and stuff like that. Anybody seen those anti-tobacco commercials? I mean, it was really brutal. Bet you'll never see one like that about people who've been involved in this other behavior. Why? Because, well, you can't say no to that. No one can say no. We're animals. Everybody's animals. You know. Look, without God, maybe they can't, but the good news with Jesus, we can The grace of God tells us, well, brother, what about grace? That is grace, for heaven's sakes. So we can live upright and godly lives, the Bible says, in this present age, not after you die and pie in the sky, right now, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke. Everybody likes to be encouraged. Nobody likes to be rebuked. You know, the Bible says rebuke a wise man and he'll love you. Rebuke a fool and he'll tear you to pieces. Well, you can always tell people who are fools today. You get in their face, challenge them, stop doing that. They get mad as hornets. How dare he say that to me? Hey, a wise man embraces rebuke. Only few fools despise it. Let us not be foolish. We need to encourage each other. We need to rebuke and challenge each other. The Bible says that we're supposed to provoke one another to do the right thing. Sadly, we just do the first part of that verse. We just provoke one another. More than just provoking and irritating each other, we're supposed to provoke each other to do the right thing. Well, brother, that's not grace. Yes, it is. This idea that when you encourage right behavior is not grace is insane. It is the very definition of grace. And the beautiful thing about grace is that he empowers us to be able to do it. It's not about you doing it in your own strength. It's that we get to do it. We get to live free from this stuff. Now, it's not that people don't mess up from time to time. Everybody messes up from time to time, but then we have forgiveness. But that's not a green light to just keep acting badly. And everybody struggles with temptation. I get it. Sometimes people ask me, is it a sin to be tempted? No. If it's a sin to be tempted, I'll be the first one in hell. Because I'm tempted just like everybody else. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin when you give in to the temptation. Well, I can't help it. I had to kill that guy. He took my parking space. I couldn't control myself. That's the world we live in today. You know, nobody's responsible. You, you realize that in the culture we live? Nobody's responsible for anything today. They're all victims. Everybody's a victim. Because heaven forbid, nobody wants to be held responsible for what they do. But make no mistake, we are held responsible, particularly as believers, because we can say no because of the grace of God in our lives. It enables us to say no, to live self-controlled. That's what Lent is about, focusing on this period of time, just realizing as Jesus' disciples, we deny ourselves so we can follow him. And I hope some of you will practice some of this. Some of you give things up for this period of Lent. You know, again, it's not about earning your way to heaven. God isn't happier just because you're more miserable. It's about you saying no to this. If you don't say no to this, it will greatly limit your life. Again, anybody who succeeds in any area of life does so because they learn to say no to this. They discipline themselves, whether they're artists, whether they're musicians, whether they're academics, whether they're athletes. The people who are the most successful in our world, who make millions of dollars, often are the most disciplined human beings on earth. They learn to say no to this, at least at a superficial level. The beautiful thing about the Christian faith is not only can we say it at a superficial level, we can say it at its deepest level. We are free, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I don't have to do the things I used to do. I'm not driven by anger and frustration and meanness and lust and everything else that dominated my life before I became a Christian. The grace of God has come into my life. He has changed me. He has forgiven me. He has redeemed me. And the plus is that grace of God inside of me 
gives me the ability to say no and to live a self-controlled life. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord God, that uh, you set us free so that we can walk in forgiveness. We can walk in redemption. We can walk in the love of God that transforms our lives. Lord, help us during this time of Lent to focus on this glorious work that you've done in our hearts as we prepare for the celebration of the resurrection on Easter morning. Help us, Lord, to learn to be people who are disciplined and learn to walk in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite our ushers if they would come as we just prepare for communion this morning and our worship team as they return back to the stage here this morning. In a few moments, we will be joining together with communion. We'll be holding a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ and the, the cup that represents the blood of Jesus and what, that, and what the blood did for us when Jesus suffered and died on the cross. We have to have an opportunity of just reflecting on that. That's what communion is all about, an opportunity of taking some time right at this point in our service and just stopping and reflecting and saying, God, what you did for me on the cross when you died, you shed your blood, you paid the price that I should have paid, you paid it for me, Jesus, and I am being reminded of that when we partake. It's a great time of examining ourselves. The scripture encourages us, examine yourself. You see, taking a time to make room for God and saying, Holy Spirit, where in my life is there some clutter? Where are some things in my life that have kind of got into my, that, that, that have pushed you out? I want to take time to examine that. Holy Spirit, put your finger on areas in my life today. But before we do that, this morning, as Pastor Mark has been sharing with us and challenging us, is this truth of grace and, and truth. Grace and truth. Well, this morning, I'm going to invite us in a few moments to pray a prayer, a simple prayer, a prayer that if you're here this morning and you're praying it for the first time, it can be a start of your new life, your new walk with God. The part of the grace, that gift of grace that, that is there for us, that grace that comes to each one of us and that we can experience salvation, being born again. But as we take hold of that grace, the truth that we then apply to our life to do and to live and to live the right way and, and do the right thing and be able to play, apply that grace that is afforded to each one of us here this morning, to you as much as to me, that grace this morning that's given to us that we can take hold of this morning and then allow God to come and impart truth to us so that we can begin to walk in that truth. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to pray this very simple prayer and invite you to pray it with me, each one of you. Just join with me as we pray it, as we take time to confess our sin, repent of our sin. That's part of the truth. And then by faith that their grace, ask Christ to come into our life as our Lord and our Savior. So would you repeat this prayer after me this morning? Say, Dear Lord Jesus, something in my heart tells me I need you. I now confess my sin and repent of my sin and by faith ask you to come into my life as my Savior 
and my Lord. Amen.